Ephesians chapter 4, Matthew 21. In case you haven't been paying attention, what is the theme of Ephesians? Chapters 1, 2, and 3, Christian, you are wealthy. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, now walk worthy. Well, today, boom, 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 we have hit the fulcrum of the book. We finally come to that pivotal point. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is the hinge of the book. Paul has spent three chapters praying that our eyes would be opened about how God has blessed us. We, sinners, he's taken us and he's uh, seated us in the heavenlies, we're going to see. He's been talking about how amazingly God has blessed us. Then he comes to now, chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. I'm begging you, I'm imploring you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You Bible scholars, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to look and see what it's there for. Right? It's a rule of thumb. You can pretty much always do it. When you see that word, okay, there's something ahead of time, something that I've already read that, that he's trying to give me a clue here. This particular therefore is huge. It might be the hugest, most pivotal therefore in the Bible. This therefore changes everything. Maybe this one in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This therefore, without this therefore, the whole book changes completely. Everything we're going to see, chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's all about application. Now, if, you're, if you've been here a while, you know, application, we kind, of, we kind of like that. It's like, okay, cool. That's something I can put my, my head around and I can uh, put my feet to. All of this has to do is application, but it's in response to chapters one, two and three. It's because of that. Therefore, that we that we know that let me put it this way. Imagine that the book of Ephesians starts right here, that there is no chapters one, two and three. There's no therefore. It's just Ephesians chapter one, verse one reads this way. I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. It might be subtle, but when you start to think about it, without this, therefore, referring to all of the riches, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Christianity becomes that long list of rules and regulations that many people think that it is. Right? That's, that's why so many people resist Christianity, because they think that it's a, a laundry list of things I got to do to try to make God happy. It's a laundry list of things that I have to do to earn my way to heaven. Without the therefore, this puts all of the pressure on us to earn our way to heaven. This therefore points back to three full chapters of Paul saying, look, because of what God has already done and what he's doing now in you, he's still forgiving your sin because of uh, the amazing graciousness that he has toward you. Don't you want to respond? God is the initiator. Christianity, God is the initiator and we are the responders. You are not earning his love. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, you don't go suddenly to earning his love. No, we are hopefully returning his love. Y'all, that's the gospel again. That's why they call it good news. <laughs> if it's, i got to earn my way to heaven, that's not good news. I was reading this morning... Uh, Luke chapter 7, about the, the prostitute that comes in. Um, Jesus is having dinner at a, at a Pharisee's house. And the Pharisees um, 
you know, he's probably really proud of the, the way he's willing to entertain this this uh, kind of radical guy. And all of a sudden, the prostitute walks in and starts wiping uh, Jesus' feet with her hair and, and crying all over him. And, and uh, this guy thinks to himself, this guy's not the Messiah. If he was really a man of God, he would know what kind of lady that is. And Jesus says, hey, Mr. Pharisee. I mean, he probably had a, na- a name, but... Hey, I got a question for you. To whom much is forgiven, do they forgive? Do they live and love much, or would it be the person who's not been forgiven much, which which would love more? And they're like, oh, well, the guy who'd be forgiven much. Um, he said, well, that's interesting because I walked into your house and you didn't uh, greet me. You didn't offer to wash my feet, which is pretty customary. You didn't offer to to put oil on my head. She's putting oil on my feet. Really interesting. This lady who's been forgiven so much can't wait to return that love. We've spent three chapters reviewing the riches that God has blessed us with. Y'all, we're the prostitutes. We're those who we should be looking for ways to respond to his great love. So what I want to do, again, just to, and it might seem overkill, especially if you've been here all throughout the book, it might seem overkill to go back, but I want to make sure that we get, once again, that chapters 4, 5, and 6 don't exist in a void, that they came out of, springing out of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And, um, and even if you have been here a while, it could be that because we break it up into pieces, that you kind of lose the, the bulk of, whoa, God was kind of crazy when he, uh, not only when he chose me, but the way he's treated me. Look, look, go back to chapter one, verse three, real quick. And I'll try to do this as quick as I can. Good luck with that. Here we go. Verse three this is where it all started. Blessed chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. OK, that's that's his opening uh, salvo there. Now watch verse four. Uh, he chose us before the world was formed. Uh, he he decided to set us apart, to take away our sin. Uh, verse five and six of that chapter, he adopted us. He accepted us, warts and all, into his family. Verse seven, he redeemed us. That is, he bought us out of slavery. Verse eight, he poured out ridiculous riches of grace. And the, the verse eight there says that he was smart to do it. Verse nine says that he made us insiders. He's he reveals stuff to us. He calls us his friend. He gives us inside information that the rest of the world doesn't have. Verse 10, that he includes us in this ultimate plan that he has. Verse 11, he gives us inheritance. Uh, verse 13, he seals us with his Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18, he's like, guys, this is how I'm praying for you. That the eyes of your understanding are being enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? That's just chapter one. Chapter two, Paul says, and don't forget the the sinner that you were. Verse one, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Paul says you were zombies. you, yeah, technically you were alive, but you were like the walking dead. You were craving things that you shouldn't. You were, were never satisfied. You were just wandering. You were alive, but you were dead inside. He says, but verse four, but God, who is rich in mercy. So many rich words in chapters one, two and three. 
because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. From zombie to a resident of the heavenlies. That's a, a, a significant promotion. Verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding what riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Y'all, this is all about, first and foremost, it has to be what God has already done for you. It can never be, wow, we better do these things to make God happy. It has to be, I'm so grateful, Lord, for what you've done, so let me respond. That's why it says there, verse 8 of that same chapter, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, what? Walk in them. And here in chapter 4 he says, okay, now let's talk about that walk. All right? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore... Because of all of these great riches. I, the prisoner of the Lord, we won't reteach that, but we've seen that before, right? Paul, writing this from uh, a jail cell in Rome, says, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not a prisoner of my circumstance. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm here because he wants me here. And that's fine with me. Wherever he wants me is where I want to be. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you. I beg you, I plead with you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The word worthy is axios. Very interesting. Again, I, I see this, this, whole, this verse right here as the axiom, the, the axle, the, the hinge for this whole book. And here this word axios, it's a merchant's term. It's what they would use from the old scales. Uh, when a merchant would use a scale, they say, okay, you give me so much of this, all right, I'll give you so much of this so that it's equal, it's worth the value. The, the, the Greek is weighing or having the same weight, having the weight of another thing of like value to be worth as much. Here's what Paul's getting at. Christian, after the way that God has blessed you, let your life, when he says your walk, he's talking about the way you walk through life, your lifestyle, your choices, the way you live your life, let it match up with the riches that God has poured out on you. Get it? Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are the riches that God has shown us. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are our response. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are His grace. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are our gratefulness expressed through our walk. Well, what I want to do, I hope you do too, I want to live a life that's worth that's worthy of his calling. That's weighty. It's got weight to it. A life that matters. Anybody else interested in a life that matters? Just a few of you. Okay. Um, he wants us to live lives that are worth it. And what exactly are we living up to? Well, look at it. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Word calling there is kaleo. It means an invitation to a wedding feast. Um, we may have talked about it before. We're talking about our king, right? The king of the universe. The Bible says that we are invited to the royal wedding feast, right? Um, 
Imagine again if you've been invited to the, the wedding of a king, you don't show up in sweatpants, right? Paul's saying, walk worthy of the calling. But then he says, with which you were called. Now, to me, that gives me much more light on the subject. The, the word called there means to give or receive a new name. To give or receive a new name. How many of you are aware that God has this penchant in the Bible of giving new names? Yes. Okay. Apparently, he so radically changes people that they need a new name. Right. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob, the heel grabber, that's what his name means, becomes Israel, which means governed by God. Remember when Jesus came to Simon Barjona said, I'm not going to call you Simon, I'm going to call you Peter. Rock. Who's the writer of this book? He used to be called Saul. Means desired one. Yep, I'm Saul. Desired one. Stand back, ladies. What's he call himself now? Paul. Little. God has this thing about giving us a new name. Revelation uh, 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him. Who receives it? Revelation 3.12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. God has this penchant to give a new name, to so radically changes that we need a new name. Now, please look back. Uh, Ephesians, look at chapter three for a second. We're in chapter four, but look at chapter three, verse 14. Remember this? We just covered this. For this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. If you're a Christian, you carry his name with you. Christ in Christian, right? Many of you know that uh, it didn't start out as, as a compliment, it started out as a derogatory term. People were like, oh, you're one of those Christians, those little Christs. And the Christians were like, I'll take that. <laughs> That's a pretty good thing. I'll take that. Paul's saying, look, you've been given a new name. You carry with you the, the name and the reputation of your king. You're a little Christ. Now, walk worthy. You guys remember as, as a kid when you'd go to a nice restaurant and your dad would say, don't embarrass me. Don't embarrass the family name. I want you to go. Well, we're going to visit these folks. I want you to make sure you say please and thank you. Don't wipe your nose with your sleeve. In short, don't act like you do at home. Act like normal kids. In our house, we would say, walk worthy of the teal name. Okay? That might not be that high of a standard. <laughs> but here's the point. Paul's saying, you're one of God's kids. Walk worthy of the family name. Now, let me ask you, though. 
keeping that same illustration. When you were a kid, if you blew it in that restaurant, meaning you blew your nose on your sleeve, um, <laughs> if, you, if you really if you really blew it, would your your dad like if you did something rude, your dad might take you to the restroom and have a little corrective talk or whatever. But he's not going to say, I disown you. You're no longer part of my family. No. Let me ask it a different way. Did any one of you earn your way into your current family with your great table manners? We showed up in our families. So isn't it that we're born into a family? And then we spend our years learning how to walk worthy of this awesome name we've been given. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, the, the name you've been given, the, the name Christ. And, and isn't it interesting now where he's going to start? Verse 2, actually, don't look, don't look yet. Because I want to see, in, in case you haven't already looked, it would be interesting to, to take a poll. When you hear Paul saying, okay, I want you guys to walk worthy of this awesome name, my mind would probably tend to go to Okay, I need to quit doing this, and I need to stop doing that, and I need to just be more righteous. I need to be more holy. That's kind of what I would think. So, before you look, what, let me ask it this way: What what would this axios like look like? The one that's that balances out that that's worthy of this tremendous calling. What would be the very first thing you would think that Paul would say about walking worthy? Interesting. Look at it, verse two. He says, "This is what it looks like." I want you to walk with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Lowliness. It means to have a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's moral littleness, humility, a lowliness of mind. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, raise your hand high, um, are humble? Oh. It's a tricky thing, right? You don't say, hey, one thing I'm awesome at, being humble. It's elusive. As soon as you think you have it, it's gone. We know that Paul had it. He never wrote that he had it, but he changed his name from desired one to little. See, the word lowliness here is actually, to me, it's very interesting. Um, And it's a really long word that I probably can't say. But it means, it, 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 one, one definition of it had a really, really bad connotation in, in the world. And actually, I guess it still does in our world. In the bad sense, if you look this up, it'll say, to deport oneself abjectly, to uh, defer servilely to others. Like, what? Um, it means to, to be a doormat, uh, or to think of yourself, or to, to, to badmouth yourself, okay? Um, so that's... That's the bad sense. But even today, don't we have conversations like this? Hey, dude, stand up for yourself, man. You don't have to put up with that. And yet, this is really important. I promise you, every truly converted Christian, every Christian that's been born again, that I know, if I, if I know them for any length of time, they talk bad about themselves. They say things like, I'm a sinner. Yikes, I'm a, I'm a wretch. I'm not a good person. I am so little morally. And again, in case you think that this is just like, you know, 
flowery or clever ways to think. Paul is a great example. He changed his name from Saul to Paul. And what did he say? He said, I am the least of all saints. That was just last chapter. And in First Timothy 15, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. <laughs> One thing I'm good at, sinning. Paul would say, look, back, back in the day when I was Saul, I used to be the Pharisee among Pharisees. I used to be the top dog. I was the Pharisee that made all the other Pharisees look bad. But now I get it. I'm the chief of sinners. And, we, and maybe some of us would say, Paul, don't talk about yourself that way. God doesn't make no junk. I think Paul would say, you don't understand. I took what God fearfully and wonderfully made and I twisted it into junk. But glory be to God, now that I get that I'm little, He's using me to do big things. I'm amazed. The very first step, I promise you, that's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit who don't think that highly of themselves. The very first step in walking worthy of your great high calling is to walk low. You walk worthy by walking, verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness. Now, the word gentleness, there's meekness. Please, please don't misunderstand. Meekness is not weakness. So funny how in the world we, we start to make these words mean the same thing. When we, when we think of meekness, a lot of times we think of weakness, we think it means milk toast personality. You understand gentleness is not a synonym for gullible. Meekness is, the definition is power under control. Turn to Matthew 21 and I'll show you. Meekness, it goes together perfectly with this concept of lowliness. Maybe a good word for our vernacular today for meekness or gentleness would be approachable. Approachability. It's definitely, I promise you, not weakness. It's not milk toast. Look at Matthew 21, verse 12, and tell me if this sounds like milk toast personality to you. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Isn't this the guy who said, come unto me, for I am meek, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Would it be safe to say here that Jesus is not milk toast? <laughs> that he's willing to take a stand? Okay, but look, verse 14. Watch this, how this, this scene changes on a dime. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Okay, so wait a second. He just drove these guys out with a whip. And now defenseless blind men, defenseless lame men are rushing into him. And children are singing all around him. This is the same Messiah who just overturned the tables. Blind guys are shuffling up to him. You get it, right? They can't see. They can't see the look on his face. Um, is he over that yet? Um, hey, who wants to go in front of me? I was next in line, but whoever wants to go and talk with him right now would be... Were they worried? 
that there's lame men and women, people who can't get away easily. He's got a whip for all they know. If you're blind, did he drop the whip? Did I hear the whip drop on the ground? Uh. And then there's the, there's the kids singing in the temple. Children singing. He's, he's meek. He's approachable. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's an invitation to anyone here who doesn't know the Lord. Jesus says, just, just trust me, I'm approachable. Matthew 21, verse 5, just a few verses before that we just, that we just read. This Palm Sunday, we're coming up close to that. It says, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The idea is he could have come on a white stallion, but he came lowly, approachable. Children singing to him, blind men feeling free, even after this episode to come say, Lord, would you heal me? Children sitting on his lap. The Lord Jesus, the creator of all things. Think about this. We all agree, right? He could snap you like a twig just by that, right? He could just think it and you'd be, you'd be there's, there's a tree that got knocked over by the wind uh, uh, in our neighborhood. And it's, it was, you know, it's only about that thick, but it's crazy. It's like Jesus could do that to you any second if he wanted to. But here it says he's approachable. He's lowly, meek. Let me ask you something, maybe a pointed question. He's meek. He's approachable. Are you? Are you living up to his name? Do the people in your family or your workplace, do they feel like they have to walk on eggshells around you? So that you don't blow up or freak out? Paul Paul says, in light of all of the riches that God has lavished upon you, not to earn his love, I promise, but to return it, walk worthy with all lowliness and gentleness. Then he says, verse 2, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Long-suffering there. You see that word? I looked it up in the Blue Letter Bible. It says, see marriage. No, it doesn't. I'm just kidding. doesn't at all. You guys are sleeping. I I was actually pretty proud of that one. Um, No, long-suffering, if you look it up, it says patience, endurance, constancy, steadfastness, perseverance, forbearance. It says slowness in avenging wrongs. Long-suffering. Willing to suffer long. Maybe willing to suffer fools long. Then it says forbearing. It means to hold up, to to sustain, to bear, uh, to endure. Question. Saying, are you patient? Are you Patient, particularly with people, are you long suffering, willing to suffer long? Are you willing to bear injustice? Are you willing to endure ignorance? Are you steadfast in your forgiveness? Are you slow to avenge yourself? Probably the the quickest way to really bring this thought into light. The word long suffering is macro thumea. Macro means big, huge, long. And then the thumea, the suffering, actually means boiling point. Do you have a really extraordinary, supernatural, high boiling point? Do you think Jesus did? 
Mark 14, verse 65 says this, Then some began to spit on him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and to say, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Isaiah 50, verse 6, speaks of that moment prophetically. And it says, from, from Jesus' perspective, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. A high boiling point. Y'all, we get our, our noses out of joint if somebody cuts us off in traffic. Or someone in the church disappoints us. They, they don't live up to what we hoped. I don't know about you, but this makes me cry out, Lord, help me to walk worthy of your name, but not to earn his love, to return his love, to respond to it. Verse 3, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, it sounds like Paul just turned a corner and started going a different direction. I think we're going to find out that, no, this is actually exactly in line with where he's been headed all along. He's going to talk now about the unity, having unity in the church. Again, just so, again, I, I probably have talked a little while. I've seen that look on your faces like, I'm trying to listen. Um, kind of shake it off a bit here. You've got to remember that this was a, a radical culture shift that they were in the midst of. The Gentiles and the Jews worshiping together never happened before. This was the, the Gentiles that had been adopted into God's family. This was God's Brady bunch. Right? And by the way, God still is saving people that you can't believe he would save. He's still saving people from all races, all economic backgrounds, educational backgrounds. Even in our church, he's bringing together people that, like, I wouldn't hang out with that person normally. In the first service, we had somebody from Scotland and from New Zealand. We've got a whole group of people that have been in Russia and that are going back to Russia. We've got homeschoolers and public schoolers. We have Democrats and Republicans. We have vegans and bubbas. <laughs> if any place should be a melting pot, it should be the church. And Paul says, look, we're stuck with each other. Part of walking worthy in such a diverse culture is, verse 3, endeavoring. It means to exert oneself, to give diligence to. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, so it's something that you actually have to work at. The Bible says, seek peace and pursue it. Peace doesn't just come up and say, hey, um, you and that guy who has, he grew up in a whole different cultural soup than you, you guys are just going to get along. No. You have to seek it and pursue it. But I want you to notice this. This is really important. Verse 3, endeavoring. So there is some effort, but it says not to create the unity of the Spirit, but to keep the unity of the Spirit. You get it? It's not our job to create the unity in the church. As a matter of fact, there's you know the ecumenical movement, which is like, okay, we... It's a shame that, that we have all these different denominations. We all, we all need to be one. And we're going to decide how you're supposed to do your worship. And, and it's all going to be the same. That's like, no, no, that's creating unity. What this says is, no, wait a second. God, if, if you're a Christian, God has already created that for you. And your job is to keep it. 
Matter of fact, he says, look, God has already made us a body. We don't have to create it. We just have to work hard to guard it. Uh, that's what he says in verse four, five, four, five and six that we're going to read. We're going to kind of go through it fairly quickly. But verse four, five and six, when you first read it, doesn't it look just like the stuff you see uh, on a church wall? Something just like, you know, placard fodder. This is not at all placard fodder. This is when you look at it, it's just the facts. What Paul is saying is, look, your job is to keep this which God has already created. Let me give you the facts about what God has put you uh, as part of. Okay, verse four, five and six. I want you guys to read the word one. Can you do that? When I stop, when I leave a space, you guys say the word one. There is body and spirit, just as you were called in hope of your calling. Yeah, tricky. One Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in y'all. We, we may dig into this more time, more next time. But what I want you to see here again is that it's not our job to create unity. What Paul says is, look, this is this is already the facts. There's just one body. There's just one church body. Now. The the, uh, the the Calvary Chapel, we might be the hands or the feet or whatever. There may be other Bible believing churches that are contribute to the body. Right. There's just one body. It's not our job to uh, all be the head or all be the, the hand or the foot. He's given us one body. He's given us one Holy Spirit. There's just one Holy Spirit. Right. Okay, um, there's just one hope of our calling that I think that's a, a long way of saying we just have one destination, heaven. You're going to like it or not, every true Christian, you're going to spend a lot of time with him. We have one destination. Uh, he's given us one Lord, one faith, one baptism and one God and father of us all. He's already created the unity. Our job is to work hard to preserve it. Verse three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This seems to come back to one of my favorite themes. Um, look at look at where it says in the bond of peace. This is very interesting to me. The word bond there is that which binds together a band. Um, but listen to this. The second definition is of ligaments by which the members of the human body are united together. And then what does verse four say? We are one body. I wonder if he's saying, guys, God has already made you the body, but it's your job to keep the ligaments healthy. Your job to, to make sure that, you know, you need to stretch a little bit, right? So that you don't pop. Anybody here know what an ACL is? Anybody ever had an ACL torn? No fun, right? Okay. I wonder if in, in the church, maybe even today, maybe even our church, there's some ligaments that are stretched they're they're maybe even torn that the bond of peace is being strained what do you do because paul says you got to work hard peace isn't just going to come after you you got to go after it what do you do how do you endeavor how do you exert yourself to preserve that peace which the which he's already provided well i think it starts with words like this i'm sorry I was wrong. That's my fault. Or 
If someone has said those words to you and you've been holding back these words, I forgive you. Or perhaps hardest of all, I've had this rolling around in my head in a while and I haven't mentioned it to you because I didn't know it was awkward, but I got my feelings hurt back here when you said that. Working diligently to preserve the bonds of peace. So that the the eye doesn't say, I've had it with that group. I'm off on my own. Eye rolls down the hallway, finds itself pretty soon withering. And, and the body goes without the eye. You're like, but wait a second, that is so hard. The things you're talking about are so hard to do. It's so humbling. Oh, maybe that's why he wrote verses 2 and 3. Look at it again. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness. Lowliness means I'm thinking more of you than of me. I, I think I blew it here. With long suffering, being willing to be patient with another person when they're blowing it, bearing with one another in love. Endeavoring, working hard, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Y'all, it takes effort, but it really takes humility. Again, I'm blessed. I, I have not been in another church or known of another church that is doing it as, as well as I, I feel like I see you guys doing it. But man, this has got to be a constant vigilant thing where we refuse to, to let our ligament get brittle. To, to say, oh, I'm not going to stretch to that point. I'm just going to cut it off here. It has to be thinking less of yourself. And it only comes, you've heard me say this, university, let me, bleh, university, the word, right? Uni is one. Versity means diversity, right? The whole idea is out of many come the one, right? Um, the only way to get Unity in the midst of diversity, and I'm looking at a lot of it, is through humility. University? Yeah, I can't do that. Unity in diversity only comes through humility. But when we get it, when we actually begin to, to think this way, and I've seen it here, I honestly think if I had to put one finger on something, like people go, why is it when I come here I feel like the Lord's here? It's because Jesus says you will know them. You, they will know your mind by their love, by your love for one another. Corporately, as we walk worthy of his name, it becomes obvious that he's here. I don't know if that's making sense. The best thing I can think of is as we go through these, these applications, he's going to ask supernatural stuff of us. And, and our best response is, Lord, to whom much is given... Much is required. Lord, he who is forgiven much, loves much. I don't know about you, but after what he's shown me in chapters 1, 2, and 3, I just want to look for ways to, to return that love.